0: Good to be with you again. As you know, we're working through the book of Colossians. So uh, for those of you who are visiting with us or first-time guests of ours, I want you to know that I don't just uh, pick and choose what I'm going to talk about. So uh, whatever comes up in the book of Colossians as we're moving through it is what we're preaching on. So that's what we're preaching on today. We believe that God speaks through his word. We don't want to pick and choose what what we talk about and what we don't. So we're going to be in uh, Colossians 3 18 through 4.1. If you have your pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one from the pew, and it's on page 834, if you're looking for where we're going to be. I also want to tell you that um, the section that we're looking at today deals with uh, the family relationships. And so, after today, we're going to take the next three weeks and look a little bit more in-depth at kind of the, the comprehensive biblical teaching for husbands and fathers, for wives and mothers, and for children. And so even though we're going to be digging into the text today and looking at this, we're going to be able to spend a little bit more time lingering over these things over the next few weeks. So be in anticipating that. Hopefully you've had a chance to find your place, page 834, Colossians 3.18. Because we believe God's voice is heard when we read his word, let's stand together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's be seated as we pray. God, thank you for your word that speaks into every situation of our life. I pray that we be people who are able to hear and receive your word which we can't do in our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit's help, so we collectively now pause after hearing your word read to say, speak to us, O Lord. May we be people who respond to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Following Jesus Christ isn't something that happens in theory. I don't know if you've ever uh, met... A uh, an athlete like this, I think of uh, a junior hire that I knew, who had decided he wanted to become a professional athlete, and so he learned all the lingo of sports. He bought all the same you know equipment and things like that that the professionals wear, but he didn't practice. He didn't work hard at it. He liked being an athlete on the PlayStation not being an athlete, in practice. But you can't succeed in sports in theory. Nor is Christianity something we participate in or are in theory. And we see that right here in our passage today. There are outlined three key household relationships. So there's the um, wife-husband relationship, there's the child-father relationship or child-parent relationship. And the third category, the slave-master relationship, might not intuitively seem like a household relationship to us, but that's because we're not in that culture in that day and age. Um, the, the, the slave-master relationship was a household relationship. It was kind of like a, a domestic servant. So maybe think like maid, butler, nanny, something like that. This was somebody who was part of your household and a daily part of your life. So, if Paul is showing us that Christianity isn't something to be practiced and lived in theory, why would he begin here with family relationships? I think it's because nowhere can you see your true self better than in the home. Who you are in your home is who you truly are. I think of uh, when I was single... I was the uh, uncle, babysitter, camp counselor extraordinaire. I could come in, bring energy to the kids, pour myself into the kids, be there for them, have fun, but keep a nice, steady environment, be even-keeled and you know, not let anything rattle me. So why is it now as a dad, when I'm sitting on the couch and my son asks me to read a book, I say no. Why is it when they start being a little bit... Uh, out of control, I get frustrated and agitated. It's because I'm not in performance mode. I am who I am in the home. And, you know, you go out there, anywhere else, you, you, can, you can fake it. Or, or you can turn on the switch. But you can't do that in your house the house, our our relationships within our home give us the most accurate picture of what's going on in our hearts. And so if our hearts have been transformed by Jesus Christ, as we've been looking at within Colossians, that will be on display in the home. Now, I'm not saying that um, you're going to be the most perfect in the home. Okay, you'll kind of be whatever out there, but in the home is really, really you show the transformation. I'm saying it's where we see the most accurate picture. And so as your heart is transformed, those old, lingering, sinful patterns will probably also be most display on the home, in the home. But it is in the sphere of our household relationships, our home relationships, where God's transforming work is most on display. You can't fake heart transformation to your family members. Now, we are going to look into each, each of these three pairs, but before we do, I want, to, uh, I want to make one comment that applies to all of them. In each of the three relationships, there's a leader, and there's somebody who's under the leader. Now, in our day and age, we like to focus on leadership. Leadership. Walk into the bookstore and say, do you have any books on leadership? And they'll show you a whole section. But walk into that same bookstore and say, do you have any good books on being a follower? There's not much on the shelf. I know probably many of you have been invited to conferences or seminars on leadership. I doubt any of you have ever attended a conference on being a follower But understanding what it means to be a follower is actually essential to what it means for us to be a Christian. Because, really, Christianity at its heart is really just being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. At the heart of Christianity is being a follower. And Jesus himself said that he submitted himself to the Father. Even though Jesus and the Father were completely equal. In the Gospel of John, Jesus twice talks about submitting himself to the Father. So when we reflect Christ, we do it through submission to authorities. It's something all of us, all of us are called to do. We all submit to God. We're all called to submit to governing authorities, to those in authority over us. And there's no better way to show the beauty of Christianity than in our submission, in our following. Because there we see dependence upon God, meekness, humility, these beautiful Christian traits. Now, that means... That for many of us, when we hear the word submit or the concept of submission, we need to kind of take it, put it down into the bathtub, give it a good scrubbing, clean it of all its negative connotations that we've gotten, and then put it back up on display with all its Christ-like beauty. So I just wanted to say that kind of as as an overall comment on all three. But now let's dig in to these three key relationships. First, wives and husbands. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now this command has become passé today. And I think a lot of that has to do with how it's been abused. Husbands are not called anywhere in Scripture to demand their wives' submission. And it's been exploited in in horrible ways throughout time and across cultures. But nonetheless, it is something that Paul makes clear that wives are to submit to their husbands. And he says, as is fitting in the Lord. Another way of translating that is as is pleasing to the Lord. Now this has, this has two implications. If it's submit to the Lord or submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord, there, there's two implications to one of that. One is that an unsubmissive spirit is not pleasing to the Lord. But there's another implication of it as well. If we're doing this out of a spirit of pleasing the Lord, then it's also clear that there are certain things that this does not speak to. So, if our, if our husband is calling us to do things that are contrary to the word of God, well, if, if we're submitting out of a desire to please the Lord, we're not going to do things that displease the Lord just because our husband is calling us to do those things. And I also want to say, if you're in a relationship where there is abuse, It's not calling on you to stay in an abusive situation. And how you live out this command in a situation like that requires great care and careful application. And so I just want to say to you, if you are in a situation like that, I urge you to come talk to one of the pastors or maybe more appropriately, one of our wives. Come talk to somebody who who can give you good counsel of how to Walk in a way that honors God while still honoring your husband. Now, in, uh, there's a woman named Barbara Hughes. She was, uh, I sat under Kent Hughes for years, and his, her, his wife, Barbara, wrote this beautiful book called Disciplines of a Godly Woman. And in it, she talks about what it means to submit. And she, she, uh, she talks about really the heart of submission is yielding to God's authority. And as we yield to God's authority, we understand that he has an established order in this world, and so we yield to his order. And then she says this, and I'm quoting, she says, When we submit to our spouses, we are once again agreeing with God that his beautiful ordered plan is worth obeying and the mystery worth preserving. By so doing, we once again acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So we go through life, we continue in our lives, submitting to our husbands, living in such a way that we understand that he will answer to Christ for how he has led this family. And that we will answer to Christ for how we have responded to our husband's authority and modeled beautiful, Christ-like, Submission. When we live that way, we teach our children what it means to submit to authority and to be good followers. And we display, we are in a unique position, wives are in a unique position as equals with their husbands to reflect the beauty of Christ in his submission as he was equal with the father. So, It's a unique vantage point that you have to model to the world an aspect of Christ that in this day and age is often neglected. But the word isn't just to wives. The next thing it speaks to is to husbands. And it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is a radical statement. If the other statement was passé, this is a radical statement, especially if you think about not just uh, kind of our Canadian context, but if you look across cultures and throughout the history of the world. Because in most places, they think the husband sits in the position where he is to be adored and doted on and served. And those of you you who have traveled outside of North America or the West have seen this firsthand. But that is not what's being called to... That's not the picture we're given here. There's There's a loving tenderness that the husband is called to show towards his wife. That word love there is the Christian word agape. And it's only used in Colossians. In the book of Colossians, the only other time it's used is to refer to God's love for his people. That's the kind of of love we as husbands are to have for our wives. And then it says, and do not be harsh with them. At the root of that word is the idea of embitter or to make bitter. We're to love our wives in a way that guards them against becoming bitter. I think of husbands, sometimes we love our wives in a self-serving way. Okay? I'm going to love you because I want to get certain things out of you. That's a good way to embitter your wife. Or maybe we love them in an un- un-understanding un- un- way. Is that a good word? I think I made that up. But in a way that lacks understanding, that lacks taking time to really understand their heart and know what's going on inside of them. So kind of we we get in our, you know, I am loving my wife mode and just keep marching. I'm doing what's loving. I'm doing what's loving. I'm doing what's loving and think we are in this little rut. And we fail to stop and take account of what's going on in our wife's heart and what her needs are. Because love is sacrificing our own self for the good of another. You think of their good, you think of our wife's physical good, their spiritual good and they're emotional good. And it requires us sacrificing ourselves and laying aside our own needs so that we can serve them well. You know, um, I think for me, one of the, one of the ways this is, uh, gets worked out, you know, I, I come home from work and sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap, right? That when I get home from work, it's been a long hard day and it's my wife's job to make sure that whew, can kind of unwind. But that's exactly opposite of what the Bible's talking about here. Something that I've tried to do is to use my short drive home from work to the home to pray and ask God to make me sensitive to what my wife's needs are. So that when I go into the home and Karen will tell you I don't always do this well. She won't tell you that because she's nice about me. But if she were honest she'd tell you Um, I don't always do it well, but I try and go in with my antenna for what are the needs in the home and how can I serve and meet those needs? So husbands, we are called to love our wives. The husband-wife relationship is the very first relationship that God created, isn't it? The second relationship that God created, human relationship, was the parent child relationship which is what is taken up next so let's look at that verse 20 children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the lord now i don't know if you caught that but children are addressed in this letter What that means is that Paul expected when his letter was read to the church at Colossae and then Laodicea that there would be children present hearing the word of God. It's kind of revolutionary. We think we have to create all sorts of books that take the Bible and dumb it down for children make it oversimplified and just, just tell the stories. We think we need to, you know, forbid children from worship services because they can't handle those things. And yet there seems to be an underlying assumption here in Paul's letter that children are going to be present. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. I think uh, adapting things in a certain way for children, trying to teach them in a certain way is appropriate. But I think there's also an appropriate expectation that children can hear the word of God But that's not his point. His point is that he's speaking to children, right? And there are children here in this room. So if you are a child in this room, you need to listen for a second because this is a command for you. It says, Obey your parents in everything. It's an even stronger statement than the statement made to wives. It adds, In everything. Now again... It's as is pleasing to the Lord. So if your parents are calling on you to do things that the Bible says are wrong, it doesn't mean you obey them in those things. But children are called to be obedient to their parents. Kids, you have a special opportunity to show people who are watching what Jesus is like. Because Jesus the Son submitted to God the Father. And he obeyed him. And so children, you can show people a little bit of what Jesus was like. And that's pleasing to God. It's a great way for children to please God. Now, who is this talking about? Children is a word for, it's not just for any, anybody who uh, has a parent. It's, it's, this is for young people, right? So this call to obey your parents and everything doesn't apply to children of adults. There's, there's commands given to honor your parents, which they're always your parents and you should always honor them. But this call to specific obedience is something that's uniquely applied here to, um, to children. Now, when does being a child end? It probably varies by culture. Whenever you're no longer under the authority of your parents, not when you wish you're no longer under the authority of your parents, but when you're actually not under authority of your parents. So probably in our culture, somewhere between 18 and 21, or when you get married or something like that, right? But then there's a command, not just to children, but to fathers. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Did you notice how, and I think somewhat surprisingly, Paul intentionally highlights the male parental role? Is it because he's the head of the family? Is it because perhaps fathers are more likely to embitter or discourage their children I don't know but it's clear that he places the primary responsibility of disciplining children on the father but that doesn't mean that this command doesn't have implications for both parents and I think it does so I'm going to treat it as such though I don't want to negate the fact that he chooses to highlight fathers here um It says, specifically, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. When we're trying to foster obedience, help our children obey, as the previous command said, when we're trying to foster that obedience, we need to do it in such a way that doesn't discourage them, that doesn't embitter them, that doesn't overwhelm them. Now, um, I think sometimes you can get into a situation where you're so focused on on discipline, I'm going to get you to obey, I'm going to get you to obey, that we actually drive our children into greater rebellion. This command here is speaking about a way of approaching discipline so that our children see the goodness of discipline. Maybe not in the moment, but overall they can say discipline is a good thing in our home. This is about creating a culture in our home where children want to obey and see the goodness of obedience. Now it doesn't mean this is an excuse to be lax in discipline. There's a lot in the Bible that talks about the importance of discipline, but it is talking about being purposeful, purposeful and sensitive in how we discipline our children. It's not just punishing. It's creating an environment conducive to obedience. This is a command that's really hit a, hit a chord with me. It's something we need to be thinking a lot about as parents. How do I discipline my child? And am I doing it in such a way that over time my children say, I, I want to obey. It's good to obey. I see the beauty of discipline and order within the home. While I was studying for this, I came across a paraphrase of this verse, and it says this: "You fathers avoid exasperating your children by overcorrecting them or scorning their efforts. For if you do provoke them, they'll become disheartened and sullen." I think that nails it. So that leads us to the third sphere of relationships, the slave and master. Now, some of you, when I was reading through this, go, "Hmm." he's in one of those passages in the Bible that talks about slavery. What's he going to do with that? Let me just say a few things up front about slavery in the Bible and about this particular comment, because I think it'll help us. I think it's important to understand and have right teaching as it relates to the Scriptures on this. First, the Bible never, ever endorses slavery. And when you look at the three spheres of relationships, um, the, the the parent or the, sorry the husband-wife relationship elsewhere in Scripture is talked about a lot and is talked about in such a way that it, it teaches that this is something will in, that will endure until the world ends. Same with the parent-child relationship. It's, in, it's endorsed within the Scriptures. It's something God created before the fall and that is taught as something that will endure until the world ends but you don't even have anything approaching that as it relates to slaves and masters. The only time it's ever spoken to is, given that that was a the society they lived in, how were they to behave within that society? So the commands here are not instructing, or are not endorsing slavery, they're just instructing, how does the slave or the master live in a way that's God-honoring? But there's a second thing I want to point out too, and that is, Slavery in biblical times was very, very different than the, uh, the African slave trade kind of colonial mindset that we're from the earth when we think of slavery. You know, the slavery that really started kind of in the 14th century and went until about the 19th century. That, that kind of slavery is very different than what was going on in biblical slavery. Biblical slavery was not generally based on race. Biblical slavery was often voluntary. A person willingly put themselves into the slavery and within that context, often for a fixed period of time. And in those days, somebody could buy themselves out of slavery, work hard and and retire debt. In fact, it was often used by somebody whose situation was so hopeless, they were so far in debt or their societal position was so low that they used it as a way to getting out of their position. So it's a very different kind of slavery. And the, the man-stealing and the racism that are at the heart of kind of the colonial slave system are so roundly and strongly condemned in Scripture. So, so those two things that I think undercurded the British and American slave systems are just forbidden in Scripture. Because of what, what was a, what undergirded them, I also want to point out that it was Christians by and large who ended slavery. This millennial old practice was ended when Christianity was at its peak of influence upon society, and it was people like. In the colonies, in the British colonies, William Wilberforce, a strong Christian who led the charge to end slavery. And it was northern Christians in America, by and large, who rallied to end the practice of slavery in America. Because the values of the gospel are so contrary to that form of slavery. The last thing I want to say is just Look ahead in chapter 4, verse 9. There's something really interesting here. Paul is talking about uh, the two people who are bringing the letter to the Colossian church, and one of them is Tychicus, mentioned in verse 7. But then it says in verse 9, He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They'll tell you everything that is happening here. Okay, thanks, James. Onesimus, now you, we know you know how to say the word if I said it right. Well, Onesimus is actually mentioned in the book of Philemon. Philemon is a book about this guy Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon. He was a slave and he ran away from his master Philemon. And in the course of his running, he ended up hearing the gospel from Paul. He comes to Christ and Paul says, all right, now you need to go back to Philemon and make things right. But I'm going to send this letter with you A letter to Philemon that asks Philemon to forgive you, which would have been crazy in those days, and to free you because you're of such use for the gospel. And most scholars believe that Onesimus, on this journey to Colossae, bringing the letter to the Colossians, was also carrying that letter that he was going to deliver with Tychicus to Philemon. So here you have the person delivering the letter that contained these words was somebody who had been an escaped slave and was now carrying a letter back to his former master, a letter from Paul, asking him to free him from his slavery. Not insignificant. All right, let's get into the passage. So, so what do we do with a passage about slaves and masters? Well, hopefully, you see, just even from my explaining some of this, that... Um, There are some things that are close approximations to the slave-master relationship of that day. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but it probably compares better in our day to the employee and employer relationship. There are some key differences, but I think that's the best way to understand this, and this has massive implications for us within the uh, sector of employment. So let's look at what's said to slaves, and we'll take it, for employees. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. As employees, we are called to work in such a way that even when our boss isn't looking, we're doing the right thing. We, got, we, we all know that employee at the office who whenever the supervisor or the boss is around, all of a sudden they straighten up and they start doing the right thing and they're trying to impress their boss and put their best foot forward. That is not how we as Christians are called to act. Because we understand something. We understand that that boss ultimately isn't our boss. That we have somebody in heaven that we serve. And he is our boss. He is the one we're serving. And he sees us at all times. So I want to conduct myself in a way in work where I am filling out the report the right way, treating my fellow employees the right way, taking advantage of the time that, that I have in the work, not to waste time, not to fritter it away, but to get the most done I can when, when I'm on you know, uh, being paid by them, regardless of whether we're being watched, because we know that God sees and we're trying to honor him. It also says, and I cut it off at verse 24, but it says, Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. If you're in this world and you don't have a relationship with Christ, then you just live for today and for this earth. And so getting the raise or the promotion is what it's all about. So you do whatever you need to do to get the raise or the promotion, to climb the next step in the corporate ladder. That is not how we as Christian employees should act, because we know that this world is passing away and there is an eternal reward for those who are in Christ. And so I want to work in such a way so that I'm storing up treasure in heaven instead of storing up treasure on earth. So that affects how I behave in the workplace. I'm not caught up in the rat race. I don't have to step on somebody to get over. I can behave in a way that honors God and everything, knowing that He is the one who will reward us. And then it adds, verse 25, Anyone, any person who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. This verse is amazing, in part because it just totally undercuts the whole premise of slavery, right? Everybody's equal before God. There's no favoritism, there's no partiality. But it also is a word of comfort to that slave who's in a situation where he is being taken advantage of and being treated poorly by his master, How does he he endure that? He endures that because he has a confidence that God is one who will bring justice. Justice will be done. God is not a God of partiality who favors the rich and favors the elite and favors the people in positions of power. God is a God who is just toward all. Now, today, there is still injustice in the workplace. And probably if we just took a smattering or a survey a smattering hands or a survey probably uh, the vast majority of the people here at one form or another have experienced injustice in the workplace and sometimes this can really embitter you and, and make your heart crooked and distrustful even though yeah we're, we're not like the slaves we can, we can quit our job and go find another job it still hurts and stings and poisons so we need to be people who understand that as we Submit to our boss and obey what we're called to do and do what we're called to do as long as it's God-honoring. That God is looking down and he is going to make sure things are handled justly. And that mistreatment you had will be repaid by a just God. He saw it. He knows. So you don't have to become embittered. You don't have to be the one full of resentment and seething and anger against your employer or your boss. But, as we've seen in the other two spheres of relationships, the command isn't just to slaves. There's also a command to masters. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Well, there's another revolutionary word That the master has a master. Or, in our day, the boss has a boss. The Christian who is over others needs to understand there is one who is over him and look to his example for how we manage others. And think of how God is with us. He's not somebody who, who shows partiality and favors certain ones. He's not unjust and fair. He's not unscrupulous and demanding. He's gracious and loving and kind and helps us in the very things he calls us to do. So, as employers or as bosses, we need to be careful that we're not people who are trying to squeeze every ounce of work out of somebody for as little pay as possible. kind of contrary to some of our capitalistic notions. We need to be people who understand our employers should have a share in the, in the work that they're doing and in the, in the rewards of the work that they're doing and treat each person as a human being. Let me just share two stories of people who I think embodied this. One is a man named Ken Taylor who founded Tyndale House Publishers. Ken was a dear, godly man. My dad works for Tyndale House Publishers and was there for a time before Ken passed away with him. Ken knew every single person's name in the company. He'd be walking after everyone had kind of gone and the custodian was there and he knew the migrant Spanish worker's name. And he cared about each individual. He prayed for them. That's a picture of a man who understood what his, how his master, his boss, treated him and treated others the same. Or you think about a guy named Jerry Terry who uh, in East Texas had a, a small hardware store. I remember it was Smith County Lumber and I remember the first time I went to it and there was a Home Depot down the road and uh, no, there was a Lowe's down the road And I went to it and I looked at the prices at Smith County Lumber and I looked at the prices at Lowe's and I thought, why would anybody shop at Smith County Lumber? It's so much cheaper at Lowe's. And then I got to know Jerry Terry. This was a family business. And he had employees who'd been with him for years and years and years. And when things got lean at Smith County Lumber, do you know who took the hit? Jerry did. So that his employees could be paid, and when somebody came along who seemed maybe a little bit more energetic and uh, you know more of a go-getter, did he let his employee go so he could bring the next guy on? No. He dealt with his employees and was loyal to his employees and took care of them. I didn't always shop at Smith County Lumber. I did have a budget. But whenever I could, I went out of my way to make my purchases there because I saw here is a man who gets what it means to be a godly, God-fearing employer or boss. So I encourage you, those who are in those kind of positions, and I know there are many of you here, treat the people under your charge the way God treats you. I want to make one comment by way of conclusion. This is probably the most important observation I'll make. Again, it's something that relates to everything, all three positions. Notice the rationale given for why we're to act that way. Submit to your husbands, because that's what God wants. Submit to your husbands. Because God told you so. Submit. Children, obey your parents. Because if you don't, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. No. As is fitting or pleasing in the Lord. Verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. Verse 22. Not out of, uh, with sincerity in your heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, working for the Lord. Verse 24, since you know you receive an inheritance from the Lord, it is Christ you are serving. Verse 25, God will bring justice. Chapter 4, verse 1, since you also have a master in heaven. We're looking at all these basic foundational relationships, relationships that are the foundation of human society, right? Right? I mean when, when marriages and families are healthy, society is healthy. And when marriages and families are fractured, society is fractured. These are the basic these are the basic relationships of human society, and yet there is a more basic and more foundational relationship. It's our relationship with the Lord. And that's been a theme those of you who have been with us as we've been studying Colossians that's the theme Paul has been coming back to and coming back to. Remember he said in chapter 2 he says as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him. In other words all that he's saying is you've got to have that vibrant relationship with Christ. As you have that relationship with Christ and He's transformed your heart and your first priority is Him it affects your human relationships. But if you leave from here thinking, boy, man, I'm such a bad husband. I'm such a bad wife. I'm a bad kid. I just give my parents grief all the time. I'm not a good employer or employee. I've got to try harder and work better and do more. Your focus is in the wrong place. Because really, at the core of this is your relationship with Jesus. And it's as you walk with Christ. Again, as we've talked about, as the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did on the cross to take your sin and what He did when He rose up from the dead to conquer sin and death so that our hearts could change, our natures could change, we we could have a transformed heart. As we believe this gospel and, and live in relationship with Christ through this transformation, that we are able to be kinds of wives or husbands or parents or children or employees or employers that God wants us to be. It begins with a transformed heart. So that's where we need to begin. If we're struggling in these areas, we need to go to Christ. Maybe you're someone here who has not received Christ Jesus as your Lord. You haven't said God, because of what you did on the cross in Christ, I am clinging to you for forgiveness and I'm following after you. If that hasn't happened, you know, don't view this as a bunch of things you gotta do. Walk out from here saying, I need to have my heart transformed by Jesus. I need to receive Christ. And if you've already received Christ Jesus as your Lord, And you look at these areas and you go, but I'm such a bad whatever. I'm doing such a poor job of this. I'm just mucking it up. Don't walk out of here saying, man, I just got to try harder. Yeah, there's some practical things and there's some steps you can take. There's some good counsel in here. But at the end of the day, the first thing you need to be focusing on is being rooted and built up in Christ. Because as Christ dominates the horizon of your heart more and more, these other things will follow from that. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word. You do know best how family is to function. You designed it. You built it. And we do want to do it in a way that honors you. And so I pray for each of us here, myself included, that we would be people who cling to Christ and love him more and more and allow him to transform our hearts so that we can be the kind of wives and husbands, the kind of children and fathers, the kind of slaves and masters that you have called us to be. For the glory of your name, amen.